Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Deputy Editor Andrew Knowlton, and joining me today in studio on the 24th floor of One World Trade Center is Belle Cushing, Assistant Editor. Hi, Andrew. This is your first podcast? First podcast. I'm usually manning the, as Adam likes to say, manning the ones and twos. Manning the ones. Well, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and our special guest, uh, all the way from over the pond, Jancis Robinson, who is... One of the world's most respected wine critics, I would say, and writer. The only reason that I get the Financial Times on the weekends is to read your column. Got to, got to tell the editor that. Okay, I will. <laughs> I'll send them. But also, um, perhaps as importantly, more importantly, the just released the fourth edition to the Oxford Companion to Wine. Do you know how many pages it is off the top of your head? I think it's nearly 900, so, three columns, and wow. it's nearly a million words. And the year that the first one came out was? 94. So this is the fourth. So every five or six years. Although this has been the longest period ever since the last edition. So lots of updates then, too. Ugh. Yes. 60% of the 4,000 entries have been substantially revised. All right, we're going to get to the book. Most of, I think, what Bell and I and I think a lot of the people at the magazine know about wine is from your from your, your writing. Yes. So we're it. thrilled that you're here. Mm. I wanted to talk about one of the things that I personally love about your writing is you mentioned that you've been doing this a while. But one of the things is, as opposed to some other writers, you seem to not get too stuck with the way things were and you're more accepting and welcoming, it seems, about Good. new trends. Is that something that comes naturally or you always try to not be jaded sometimes like other wine people? I, I'm just curious, always curious, and I'm always on the side of the underdog, I suppose. So whenever there is a, a really obscure... Ecuadorian Vermentino. I'm the one chasing after it to see whether it really does taste any any good at all. Do you Have know you that? Had an Ecuadorian <laughs> no, no, very no, no. I'm 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 going to the extremes of possibility. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's definitely something that has uh, struck a chord with me. I pretty new, being only 25, I'm pretty new to the wine world. But uh, when I first started working in it, I was very intimidated, um, even as someone who was very excited and wanted to learn as much as possible by just the sort of status nature of wine. And everybody sort of wants to show off what they know and are a little derisive of certain wines that maybe are not quite up to snuff. And with you, it was just like, no, this is great wine. I want to discover more. and that's Keep open and, and call it when you think that a classic isn't performing well, but always be curious. One of my great mentors was um, my predecessor at the Financial Times as wine correspondent, a, an amazing guy called Edmund Penning Rousel. What a wonderful who, name. <laughs> who had sort of um, uh, little tufts of hair on his cheeks and, um, you know, wore a hat and gloves and carried a walking stick and a three-piece suit, but yet was a lifetime subscriber to Marxism today. He was a sort of real <laughs> conundrum. And um, he all he was never ashamed of saying he didn't know something. He was always curious. And his catchphrase almost was, how interesting. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. well, that's a and uh, and I, I sometimes wonder how some wine writers ever learn anything because they talk so much. They're so opinionated, you know, even with wine producers, the chat, 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 what, what they think. And really, I tend to keep quiet and just... Or ask the questions and try and try and be in reception mode. My broadcast mode is when I'm writing, right. and and I'm in reception mode when I'm 
interacting with the wine business. And and how important, as somebody who writes about wine constantly and, and drinks wine, I know for a lot of our listeners out there, when they go to a winery or they do a wine tour, that has like a, I mean, I remember the first time I went to a winery, like, oh, I love this winery now. Even if it was junk wine, uh, that had that relationship. In terms of you writing and, and finding out what's happening in the wine world, how important is it to you to go to source, to meet the winemaker, have that opportunity. It's very, very important to put things in context, I think. And I I do always feel there are still wine regions, wine districts, though, that I haven't been to. And I always feel very uncomfortable writing about them because I do think wine is much more than just what's in the glass. And there are so many great personalities in wine. I don't know what it is about wine. It seems to attract the quirky, certainly the generous, um, generally the articulate. And so it, it's a great part of my job to go traveling. But you can't visit everybody. And right. as the wine world is expanding, it, it is physically impossible. You know, the average consumer, do you think they need to know anything about the winery or to, to enjoy a bottle of wine? I always think about that, you know. I think to in, put it another way, to enjoy words written about wine, I think it's difficult to just take in a whole load of tasting notes. I think wine is so much more than that. And there are so many great stories to be told about wine that I do try to seek them out. And I suppose I'm a bit of a journalist rather than a a lyrical writer. So I'm also trying to identify the new trends and share them with readers. But I must say, I think probably the world is getting a bit bored by just tasting notes, actually. (laughs) Well, I mean, they're... They don't say that much. I always, Mm -hmm. uh, tasting notes can sort of easily fall into that trap where it's almost like Mad Libs and you can Mm -hmm. insert any already accepted tasting note here, like racing or nervy (laughs) or, um, I used to write emails for sales offers for a wine store. And I, sometimes if I kind of got blocked, I, it felt literally like I could just pick a word out of a, out of a <laughs> word box and stick it in. And that's really such a shame because there are so many stories and it is really exciting to write about, but sometimes you can just feel like you're filling in the blanks. I feel very, very lucky, though, that, that at the moment, that actually throughout my 40-year career, I celebrated my 40th anniversary of writing about wine on the 1st of December. Um, the The explosion, the expansion of the world of wine has really coincided with my career. And, um, you know, when I started, I wasn't... Well, yeah, what was your first wine gig. gig? Yeah, I was taken on as assistant editor of a wine trade magazine. Okay. And that was great, actually, because, uh, A, not many people read it, so I could make mistakes <laughs> and nobody noticed. Um, but, B, I suppose on the trade side, you get to see how things really are rather than the, the sort of PR right. side of things. Uh, and it, it meant I didn't know anything about wine. And, in fact, the publisher who hired me said, we've had a lot of applicants for this job and a great deal of difficulty choosing the right person. Either we choose a trained journalist and teach them all about wine mm-hmm. or we choose a wine expert and have to teach them how to write he looked down at my application and he said you of course are neither of these things <laughs> <laughs> so, so why did, why did you get hired do you think a year later went at the kind of christmas party and i thought if there'd been a terrible misunderstanding um i asked him why did you hire me was it because i'd lived in france for a year sounds good <laughs> Uh, was it because I had done some freelance writing for the Good Food Guide, which was then right. Britain's premier 
restaurant guide? Was it because I was restaurant correspondent of ISIS, the Oxford University wine magazine? No, it's none of those things. Was it, I said rather nervously, because I did some temporary work for a wine company, which was technically true, except that the wine company owned a wine bar in the city and I was basically a barmaid, but I didn't <laughs> spell that out. No, 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 he said, none of those things. It was because you'd shown that you could organise the skiing side of Britain's biggest travel company. And we reckoned, we saw you were taking a salary drop and we reckoned that you would, even if you didn't know anything, you would organise yourself to wow. know it. In a way, he was right. Because I did immediately sign up for the Wine and Spirit Education Trust courses and I zoomed through those, you know. And then when I was allowed to take the Master of Wine exams, I did that. So I did go go to educating myself. So in our in our December issue, we have a story that Bell uh, did most of the heavy lifting on. Uh, how to be a wine snob without being snobby. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you have a book that we can talk about uh, that is coming out in February, mm -hmm. which is the 24-hour wine expert. And you can talk about the book through this question. Is It seems like wine is more fun than it has ever been. Definitely. Why, why is that? Is everyone just like relaxed about it now and like let's just have a good time? I think so. I yeah. think because there are so many more young, younger people interested in it, it's right. hugely more accessible. And because people like me and um, people who used to have the field to themselves and hand down pronouncements from on high, right. we're not so powerful anymore. You know, it's much, much more democratic and ordinary wine drinkers can, you know, take a picture or look things up on Vivino and Delectable and do their Instagramming and all that sort right. of thing. Because uh, when I started out, honestly, um, from a little village in northern England and not being brought up with wine, if, if you said the word wine, it had to have audible quotation marks around right. it. You know? <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. um, which just isn't the case anymore, is it? No. I mean, even in Britain, in our most down-market soap operas, uh, people just pour themselves a glass of wine as a kind of little dramatic interlude without <laughs> any comment whatsoever. So uh, it's wonderful. I'm, right. I'm delighted by that, I have to say. So there's a few things, I know, Belle, that you wanted to ask Jancis about that we kind of covered and how she sees wine becoming more fun based on those kind of principles. Yeah, it seems like there are a few trends that I know you've written about some of them and would love to hear your take um, that sort of contribute to wine being so much more accessible and so much more fun. Um, and one of them is this uh, is actually the act of buying wines. Um, the, we have access to so much more um, and almost every city has a very cute little wine shop where you can go in there and make friends with the wine clerk and that'll be your sort of go-to neighborhood place. Absolutely. I mean, even though I've spent 40 years earning my living selling information about wine, sometimes giving it away, but ideally <laughs> selling it, um, I, I always say, if somebody says, I want to know more about wine, what shall I do? I always say, establish a rapport with a local wine retailer. It's just like a bookstore, really, isn't it? You go in and you tell them what you've read, what you've enjoyed, and you rely on them to recommend something else that's going to suit your taste. In New York, we say oh, your wine store is more important than your shrink. You know? <laughs> so you have a, you have somebody that you can always go to. That's the biggest thing is because if I, you know, if I know 
you can learn whatever you want about wine, but you're still not going to know as much as somebody who does it for a living, you know, I think. Exactly. And, and it is in their interests to right. give you good advice. And if they don't, then you move on to the next store. Right. And it's it's a nice feeling to go into a shop knowing that every wine is a quote unquote good wine. And mm. so any exploration you're doing within it is just figuring out new grapes or new producers, new regions. Um, and then another trend, which I find a sort of I have sort of a hard time defending and but I'm definitely a fan is lower alcohol wines um and how you know we don't see these huge 16% big they're out of fashion aren't they yeah they are yeah. and so why why do you think that is i think it's for every action there's a reaction right. and um the world went for oh let's have wines Bigger as powerful better. as yeah. possible yeah. And it was inevitable there'd be a reaction against that. So it's a pleasure to find wines that are lower alcohol but have that are just chock full of flavor. And, and I think the poster child, at least that in the United States, that's just gone up in increasingly popularity is the Beaujolais Village. Mm-hmm. Being low alcohol, kind of easy drinking wines. And it took us so long to get over to the Nouveau thing. Well, it's fabulous to hear that because the poor old Beaujolais growers have had life it's been very tough for them. So I'm thrilled if the, um, there's much more being exported to this country. I don't think we're quite there yet. So, oh, no. really? okay. But you're obviously the trailblazers. Oh, so yeah. We'll, we'll <laughs> be there. <laughs> what, um, what is your take on the New York wine market versus the London or UK versus America in general? I think you're a little much more um, old world centric than we are. I think we are... Um, I'm quite surprised. I mean, you've got some wonderful wines here, but I'm quite surprised by how difficult it is, how you've turned completely off Australia as though the whole country. It's a a bad word now. I know. (laughs) And I feel so sorry for these. You know, there are some very good wine producers in Australia. It's just not the case that that it's all about... um, Barossa Shiraz and and um, Yellowtail. You know, right. th- there are some. Yeah. Well, I've actually been. I think I've been selling this to Andrew a little bit. I've heard about these new producers. There's one importer actually uh, called Vine Street. Oh right, which is bringing yes. in a lot of young. Mm. This the new of, wave. Yeah, the yeah. new wave. Yeah. The sort of new California now. The mm. new Australia. But, Adelaide. Hills but that's. And all I mean, that. Belle, you bring up a good point. That's something distribution of wine is so difficult and the U.S. is such a big place that what you can get in California or Texas or New York sometimes is completely Completely different. different. And one of the points that we make in in our story is, and you can say if, if this is something that you do or, I mean, you probably know all of them, but, you know, you used to go in and look at the front label of a wine bottle to see who the grower was and the year. But now I've told a lot of people who don't know wine, if you if you don't even want to bother, is turn the label around and see who the importer is. That's good advice. Because yeah. if you're buying a Kermit Lynch here or a Rosenthal right. or... Louis Dresner. Yeah. Now there are a bunch of younger importers, Zevrovin, these wine streets, Lexion Massal who, and if you get to know their portfolios, and it's it's almost like the same relationship that you have with the wine shop. You sort of know their personality. You figure you trust them generally. Um, and then you can pick up any Louis Dresner wine and feel pretty confident you're going to like it'll it. Be, yes, it'll be mm-hmm. pretty funky. And, right. uh, but pretty good. Carefully <laughs> selected. <laughs> but do you know, are we getting some of these wines that you're very excited about from the from the new world? Do you know if we're getting a lot of those into the United States? I, I have been looking, because I've been organizing one or two tastings, and I thought there's no point in me showing the sort of wines that you're already familiar with. So right. I've been 
particularly trying to um, show these. And yes, there are one or two specialist okay. importers. Is there, I, just for my own, uh, yeah. is there one, like one of the Shiraz, you know, producers that you're really excited about that we can find here or... Well, funnily enough, I, I, you know, like most people, I can only remember as far back as this morning. And what I was writing about this morning was a guy who has just been voted Australia's winemaker of the year. Who's um, he's called Steve Panel, and his um, label is S C for Charlie Panel, P A W N E W L, and he really he's very thoughtful and forward thinking and realizing that Australia can't go on picking super ripe grapes and has to actually plant more. He's he's experimenting a lot with port grapes, for instance, okay. which are used to very, very high temperatures and things. And his wines have the most fantastic energy in them. He's making them very reductively. He's actually he's bottling them quite early. He's not giving them new oak. Um, I would hope that he's got a, uh, I think he's got a U.S. importer. Okay. So he'd be in the forefront. I mean, he'd be mm -hmm. one. And he doesn't, but but like most wine countries now, there's also the kind of, not quite lunatic fringe, but the um, the fringe pushing the envelope perhaps just a little bit too far. A little far. too far, right. And he, but he's he's got the balance right, I'd say. Right. I feel like one factor in the U.S. is that we spent so long trying to convince people that it wasn't all about Napa or, you know, big Shirazes or, Sauvignon you know, Blanc or, you know, or Argentinian yeah. Malbecs, that that wasn't the only thing. And just the wheel moves slowly. And so we did that for so long. And now you have to sort of convince people again that, it, again, it's not just... It'll be very, very interesting just... to see what happens in the medium term to Napa Valley Cabernet, won't it? Because mm -hmm. from my view, because I... I I'm, I, I've got a pretty global view, I think, even though I'm based in London, because both JanicesRobinson.com and the Financial Times have a very global readership. Yes. Um, and, of course, my books, not just The Oxford Companion to Wine, but The World Atlas of Wine, and um, I'll have sales globally. And it does seem to me as though the only, um, only little bit in the world which is withstanding this trend to making fresher wines, lower alcohol wines, is Napa Valley. Actually, Napa Valley Cabernet. You know, you'd be a fool to say port has to be lower alcohol. You know, there are there are certain styles that right. that suit higher alcohol, um, and so perhaps Napa Valley Cabernet will always be a pretty full-on wine. However, if you think about the examples that were made in the seventies, sixties, I've tasted the odd one from the forties. They were stunning, and they weren't heavy and, and alcoholic. You know, they lots were more of 12, 12.5% right. alcohol wines that have stood the test of time. Speaking of California, it's a little early here at the World Trade Center, but perhaps we can pour just a, yeah. just a smidgen. What are we drinking? Um, so this is a Pet Nat, speaking All of trends, right. yes. uh, and new additions to the New entry Companion. in the Oxford mm -hmm. Companion to Wine, <laughs> yes. Um, this is a Pet Nat from Napa. Um so not your Napa cab by Michael Cruz. I don't know um, Michael Cruz. No. He's sort of a seems to be somewhat of a darling in the new Napa no. world. Um, I haven't tried this wine yet, so it'll be let's open it. New and for it everyone. and it and it does have a just for the readers, uh, listeners at home, readers, listeners, viewers. Um, it does have a crown cap, which is the the bottle cap that you get like on a Coca Cola bottle. Um, so 
chances for people who don't know, and we can segue into the fourth edition of the Oxford Companion to Wine. Every year, it's one of my favorite sections. You have the new edition, the new terms, like yeah. the dictionary that makes it and in. There are 300 of them. 300. And one of them is PetNat. Yeah. So give us the down low, I guess, A, what is PetNat? And then what's the decision like? Who decides you do probably like what makes it in that that edition? Yeah, well, Petnat or Petillon Naturel, which is its its um, long winded name, where the um, fermentation is is natural in the bottle, and it's sure it, it's the perfect wine for you know middle the of podcast. the working day. <laughs> now, are you a fan well, of them in general, had, or are you I kind think of they're fun? They're yeah. a new, you know, I, I, they're nothing to think. Not deeply too about, serious. right? Yeah. yeah, 10% alcohol. That's what yeah. I was looking at. Right. Yeah. And a pretty, pretty pale kind of um, Cheers. pale salmon Cheers. color. Does he say what grapes it's, it's made of? It's Oh, very trendy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and for the listeners, could you give a little Oxford synopsis of uh, what this grape is? Well, now what? Was it what the, was the grape again? Valdigue, which is Valdigue. almost impossible to find in its native southwest France, I think. And it used to be called something. It was. It's only relatively recently been identified as that. Um, as for the decision about what's new and what goes in, the editor's decision is final. I, I suppose I just become aware of terms that have become more prevalent, uh, phenomena. Sometimes it's a question of things being renamed. For instance, in the third edition, we had an entry under random oxidation, which was the largely Australian term for the horrible phenomenon whereby particularly white burgundy, but generally white wines, would suddenly go brown and lose their fruit. And nowadays, we more more frequently call it premature oxidation or premox. So Obviously, there has to be a little entry under random oxidation saying, see premature oxidation. So as editor of the Oxford Companion to Wine, you become an absolute whiz at cross-references. That's, um, <laughs> that's the key. And you do need quite a logical brain to slice this massive, amorphous world of wine into topics and entries and how the entries relate to each other. Right. It's fascinating because you'll have a very technical term like premature oxidation, mm. but then also urban wineries, oh. uh, because that's definitely a growing trend. Or And Belle, uh, you wanted to ask Jancis about one, we were talking about tasting notes before and the words we used to describe it. And one of the words that we've seen when you're talking to a, a psalm is a big word. Minerality. The M word. The, the M, M word. word. You yes. knew exactly where I was going. <laughs> what, what is that? Uh, what does it mean, I guess? And and why did how did it become so damn sexy to say, I like a, a lot of minerality in my wine? It's interesting, isn't it? And it is such an imprecise term, and that's what we've tried to get across in the quite long right. entry on we minerality. Use it in our article, and mm. our research director mm. came up to me, and she was like, "I just can't find a definition for this. <laughs> I can't fact check minerality." <laughs> um, quite exactly. Well, it it basically covers any flavor that is not fruity, not veggie, not animally, not woody, um, but but is in the kind of spectrum from. Something stony, something warm, earthy, uh, something even sulfide-y. Um, mm -hmm. Anything that, that might possibly have something to do with rock stones or, or chemicals, actually. So my wife is Norwegian, and I saw that mm. Norway was in there, and I was like, oh, i got to read this entry. And then, Belle, can you read? It's kind of this depressing little <laughs> entry about... Norway has a vineyard. Has, has a, a vineyard. Yeah. Norway has a vineyard on the southern coast 
in Christian sand, although the Pinot Noir and Riesling vines have difficulty ripening a crop. <laughs> so have you that had that? pretty far, sir. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's, it was planted with help from the very gifted uh, Rheinhessen wine producer, Klaus-Peter Keller. And he just keeps sending me pictures from this poor bedraggled <laughs> vineyard where the birds get there first. And uh, it'll happen one of these days, but it, it needs a, a supercharge of climate change, I think help it on its way. We'll all be gone, hopefully, by, yeah. by the time that happens. Yeah. <laughs> They'll only be making wine in Alaska and Norway. Yeah. So you're also publishing a much smaller book. This Oxford Companion to Wine is enormous. Your new book is much smaller. Um, and it's sort of a guide for young people drinking wine. So the 24-hour wine expert came about because of our 24-year-old daughter, who was fed up with all her friends liking to drink wine, not knowing much about it and saying and having lots and lots of questions about it and saying, yeah, hey, your mother's a wine writer. Ask her this, ask her that. I just felt there are so many people who don't want a great big million word Oxford companion to wine and want a shortcut to the sort of practical things to avoid making a fool of yourself. And so um, I've written this book, but it's actually been quite difficult because if you spent 40 years learning about something, it's really quite difficult to pare it down. And it's been really useful to have an editor who doesn't know anything about wine, but is the perfect target market. Did you get your daughter to weigh in? On oh, yes. She mm -hmm. read every word and kept occasionally saying, Mom, don't use that word. Yeah, I can't wait till that. I've been sort of doing a an ad hoc version of that for all of my roommates, past okay. and present, because they're like, "Oh, Belle knows about wine. She she'll bring home bottles, and you can you can tell us all about it." And now they'll see a wine and be like, "Oh, that's a Belle wine." <laughs> now I know. But I think that would be a, a more complete course. <laughs> so before we let you go, uh, we do have our lightning round. I don't like the sound of this. That so I'm going to ask you. Am I going you... to have to have memorized every word in the Oxford Companion? No. Yes. No. 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 Down to the page. This <laughs> is this is. Uh, this is not as smart as the uh, Oxford Companion. And you have to answer them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll give you one or two if you really don't want to. Mm -hmm. And just one word answers okay. is great. Crown cap or screw top? Screw cap. Ice in your wine is permissible always, never, or only in what situation? When the wine's too hot. So it's okay to oh, put yeah. ice in your wine. Yeah, yeah? You know, it would be a bit silly. The trouble is ice usually has a rather nasty taste. Yes. Uh, so be careful of your ice. But I've been known to put ice in. In fact, I, I've done it very recently, like in the last two days, somewhere here in New York. Awesome. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear. So um, in terms of tasting notes, cat pee or forest floor aromatics? Well, I'd rather <laughs> taste the forest floor aromatics. <laughs> what is the most ridiculous tasting note that you have come across? I or something you wrote and then had to erase <laughs> it because you're like, no, no I no, can't do much, that. Too far. Well, I did find one, and I didn't have to look very far because there are lots like this, but I wrote an article recently including my thoughts about how unhelpful long lists of flavors are because mm -hmm. I we're we all have different tasting equipment and I think for the novice wine drinker it's probably very off-putting to be given 10 different flavors that they'll never ever find in a wine so if I can remember there was there was I remember there was grilled watermelon there was oolong tea there was black raspberry <sighs> 
there was fennel. No, fennel seeds. Um, These are all for the same wine? All the same wine. But this is just the start. The, uh, did I say sandalwood? No, sandalwood. <laughs> um, there were 10 anyway. And, and those are the, just the only ones that I can remember. River Cafe or Kitty Fisher's? Do you know, I've yet to go to Kitty Fisher's ah. because it opened at more or less the same time as our son's second restaurant, Portland. Ah. And so I've got a little <clears throat> against it. Oh, your son owns... You know, I was just looking up London restaurants, actually. Ah. Well, I'm going there in yeah. a few weeks, but also because I wanted to throw some London restaurant questions at yeah. you. And yeah. I saw it. It's so beautiful. I didn't realize that was your son. Well, it's just been given a Michelin star oh. after only nine months, which is crazy. No pressure. No pressure. Crazy. <laughs> Beer or cocktails? Cocktails. What's your drink when you're not drinking wine? I like acidity. So mm. I, I don't often but I have cocktails. I, I love Pisco Sour, which admittedly is um, perhaps not a cocktail. And I'd like all the kind of Tom Collins-y. Kind of know, citrusy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The odd Caipirinha. Uh, tetra packs or boxed wine? Tetra pack. I think they're, they're really sensible, tetra pack. And box is fine, but um, I'd love to see more wine producers who are selling everyday wine using tetra packs. I think it's just very sensible. There's no sense in shipping wine around the world in something as fragile and expensive to make as a bottle. Wow. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, do you drink wine every single day? Afraid so. For how long? Oh, about now. <laughs> uh, you mean for how long have I drunk yes, wine? Yes, yes. Every single day. Uh, 40 years? 40, right. 45. You have, never she, take a break. She, she has me beat, I think. <laughs> I try, but I don't know. <laughs> well, very occasionally, if we go on holiday somewhere like Egypt or India. <laughs> Where you can't drink <laughs> wine. <laughs> and even there, I try desperately. Smuggled Do you try? In. You're not... Just so desperate to get away from wine. No, I'm never desperate to get away from wine. I'm always curious. So, yes, certainly, uh, you know, traveling in both those countries, I've tried the local stuff. And certainly when we were there, the local Indian was better than the local Egyptian. But I'm told Egyptian wine has got better. All right. Well, thank you, guys. That is Bill Cushing. I'm Andrew Knowlton. And today we've been joined by the most knowledgeable Jancis Robinson. Thank you, Jancis. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by executive producer Bell Cushing and project manager Carrie Polis with editing by Mitra Kaboli. The theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.